Amen. Well, good morning. It is good to see you all this morning. I'm thankful that you're here, thankful that you are with us. Man, it has been a wonderful morning already in service. So good to just hear the voices fill this room. Uh, I have hopes and prayers that one day we will be singing so loud with such uh, bravado, if you will, in terms of rejoicing that maybe we will blow the walls off this place. Uh, boy, wouldn't that be something? Some of you would say, well, what would happen to the ceiling? Uh, I'm confident it would hold. I'm going to go ahead and tell you. I, I trust the people who've been up there, and and they said it will hold. Uh, and so, uh, boy, wouldn't that be interesting? Now, some of them are looking at me going, Pastor, that's not what I said to you at all. Uh, but man, I, I have faith in that. <laughs> so anyway, it is just encouraging, and I hope you are encouraged by the voices around you as they sing and proclaim uh, the goodness of God and the goodness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, uh, this morning we are in 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to be wrapping up 1 Peter chapter 4 today, moving into 1 Peter chapter 5 in the next week, and we, which means that we will be closing our letter soon here in 1 Peter and then moving over into 2 Peter. So what I want us to do this morning is jump back into the Word again in 1 Peter chapter 4 and see what Peter is now writing to or writing about to the elect exiles. Now we have spent the past several weeks, and not to sound like a broken record, talking about suffering and how we as believers are called to now respond to that suffering, which ultimately has left us with one final question, which is what should our heart posture be when suffering comes? Now, the best way I can describe this to you and, and what should be our heart posture towards suffering is this, is what happens to us when persecution comes or what happens when suffering comes? What happens when all of a sudden we get squeezed? Now, I often think about this and what I've heard from a, another pastor, I've heard it in terms of squeezing an orange. Now, if you've ever squeezed an orange before, you know what comes out, right? It's orange juice, right? Most of us like orange juice, okay? And that's good stuff. Some people, if you don't like orange juice, just bear with me, all right? There are a lot of us who do. But what we've noticed is anytime you squeeze an orange, we know that juice comes out of it. And it's usually good juice that comes out of this orange. So when you compare this orange to your own life, when you begin to compare it to your own suffering, when you begin to compare it to your own heartache or your own frustration, the question that we now have to ask is this. When we are squeezed, as believers in Jesus Christ, when the pressures of this world seem to become too much for us today, what comes out of us when we are squeezed? Does it reflect the sin nature of man? Or does it reflect the goodness of God and the holiness to which we have been called to? Well, in our text this morning, Peter is actually going to ask the same question and answer the same question for us. You see, Peter wanted the exiles in the midst of their persecution. Peter wanted the exiles in the midst of their suffering to continue to reflect Jesus Christ as they were being squeezed. And so Peter reminds the church that when suffering comes, and by, oh, by the way, in our text, it has and it will. When suffering comes, the heart posture of the church should be to rejoice and be glad. 
So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I would encourage you to join me now in 1 Peter chapter 4, and we will begin reading in verse 12. Now again, stay seated right where you are. At the end of our text in verse 19, I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord. I'm going to ask you to respond by saying, thanks be to God. That lets me know that we are listening and we are connected and on the same page, okay? So here we go. 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 12, says this, Beloved, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, What will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, by this point, Peter has now called the church strangers and aliens. And just to kind of give you a recap of where we've been through 1 Peter so far and how we got to where we're at now in 1 Peter chapter 4, there's some things that I want us to remember. You see, Peter has, by this point, called the church exiles. They are clearly living in a, king, a kingdom, living in a, an empire that is not their own, nor does it even reflect what it is that they now believe. And so Peter calls these exiles, this, this church now, to, to live good lives lives for the glory of God, for the purpose of silencing the false accusations that have come against them. So by the time we get to 1 Peter chapter 2, we then see that Peter begins talking of the suffering that is coming and the persecution that is on its way, but not to expect it in the sense of fearing it and being afraid that every person has come to persecute you, but rather understand that this suffering and persecution is heading its way as it moves out from Rome into the rest of the Roman Empire. Now, as we continued in 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter then reminds the church that we as believers, that they as believers, the exiles will suffer for doing good for the glory of God. And they will suffer for the sake of their faith in Christ Jesus our Lord. So now by the time we get to chapter 4, all of a sudden in the original language, Peter's tone begins to shift and begins to change away from what was expected to now what is. And so at this point in our reading today, and even in our reading last week, we can safely assume that persecution and suffering for the believer has now come. And the reality is, by the time we look at verses 12 through 19, I believe that the exiles, along with Peter, have now realized that this this persecution, this suffering, was harder than what they originally anticipated. Now, as we read these words... I think as Christians today, we should expect the same thing. 
Now again, we, we live in a Western society where we may not experience suffering like other parts of the world, but we do need to realize that just like moving from one chapter to another in 1 Peter or like turning a page in a book or in your Bible, we need to understand that suffering and, uh, suffering and persecution can and will come for all of us. In fact, it was Samuel Rutherford who being imprisoned for his faith in the cellars of a prison and being afflicted said, I had no problem with being in the cellar because there the great king keeps his wine. It was Charles Spurgeon in preaching on suffering said these words, they who dive in the sea of affliction and persecution bring up rare pearls. You see, coming back to our text and what we need to realize today, Peter, in knowing that affliction and suffering had now intensified across the region, now in this final section on suffering where he writes one more time about suffering, he writes to the church to not only encourage them, but to command them to rejoice and be glad. In fact, if you look at verse 13 quickly with me, it says, but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings. Here is our command. Peter commands the church. He commands the exiles that when you're dealing with suffering, when you're dealing with persecution and it comes for you, he says, rejoice. When the suffering of life comes for you because of your faith, when you are dealing with persecution because of your faith, when you're dealing with hardships or even even some modern day sicknesses that we deal with, Rejoice! Now this would be the complete opposite of what our world teaches. But notice what Peter says to us this morning. He says, rejoice in spite of your suffering. Better yet, rejoice because of your suffering. Because here's the truth for us today. In our rejoicing, we are no longer honoring ourselves and praising ourselves for what we have come through, but rather as strangers and aliens living in this world today, our way of living on this earth, according to Peter, is to continue to rejoice and praise God for his goodness and praise God for his glory. And so that is why we rejoice. Now, Peter in the text this morning is actually going to take his original question and, and give us a second question, which is this. Why should we rejoice and be glad? If the command is to rejoice, then why should we do it? Why should we rejoice and be glad? Well, quickly, Peter is going to give us five reasons on why we should continue to rejoice and be glad. First reason is this. He says, rejoice and be glad because in suffering... There is a plan. In suffering, there is a plan. Look with me in verse 12. Peter says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Notice that Peter opens by telling the exiles that suffering isn't strange for the believer. Suffering is not something that's, that's out of the ordinary for believers. Suffering is not something that we can call absurd, or better yet, it's not meaningless for the believer. But rather, in suffering for the faith, there is a purpose to that suffering. 
In fact, in Jesus' own words, in the Gospel of John, chapter 16, verse 33, he says, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. You see, Jesus tells the disciples to expect suffering. He tells the disciples to expect hardship, but then notice that he then encourages them by reminding them of the fact that Jesus Christ will win. And we know the end of this story because as you get later in the Gospels, it is Jesus Christ who has won. So when suffering comes for the believer, which is the plan of God, we as believers can be encouraged because our persecution reveals that we both belong to God, but also it reveals that just as Christ overcame, so too will we as believers in Jesus Christ can and will overcome. I mean, think about this for a moment. If Jesus Christ could suffer such hostility that we see in the gospel, then as his followers, as those who who, uh, claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, we should expect the same hostility that Jesus Christ himself experienced. And yet at the same time, because it was Jesus Christ who overcame sin and death, Because it was Jesus Christ who was given the victory. That is the good news of the gospel, the the power of the resurrection. We know as those who believe in him, we too can and will overcome. Do you understand that? Death is not the end of our story. Your sin is not the end of your story, especially if you profess faith in Jesus Christ. There is victory to be had there. You see, I believe, coming back to our text today, I think Peter is thinking really one thing in mind. I believe he's thinking at this point, if the exiles could simply be prepared. Now, I'm going to go ahead and pause here and tell you, if you know anything about Peter and his day and what was going on in Rome, I don't know how you prepare for what it was that believers were going through. You see, in our history books, we talk a lot about the, the Colosseum and the, and the battles that took place in the Colosseum. We even have a great movie made about uh, uh, the Colosseum and battles that happened there. I mean, everybody's seen it. Gladiator with Russell Crowe, right? I mean, we all know. Most of us probably have that speech memorized, you know, when he asked him, what's your name? I am Maximus Aurelius Aurelius, you know, commanders of the armies of the north. You know, that you got it, right? And we think of all these great enslaved people who were battling and became these great warriors, almost kind of like a modern-day American gladiators. Does anybody remember when that show was on TV in the 80s and 90s? Okay, praise God. I was going to make this reference, and I thought it was going to fall flat, but clearly it didn't. Okay, that's kind of what we think of, right? But the reality is this. When we talk about what was going on in the Colosseum, yes, they recreated battles. Yes, there were victories. But the reality is most of the battles that were recreated were used, uh, were using Christians at their expense. They would march in all these great and mighty Roman soldiers, and then they would arm Christians as the enemy and give them sticks. And they would say, fend for yourself. It looked nothing like the movie. In fact, we know that even in the city at Rome, In order to light the streets at night, they would place Christians in cages with wood and oil, and they would light them on fire. And that was the type of persecution believers were experiencing, not because they committed a crime, but because they professed faith in Christ, which for Rome was a crime. So that's the kind of persecution Peter is thinking of here. And i got to be honest with you, I don't know how you prepare 
anyone for that. But Peter in the text, he is doing everything that he can to prepare the believers for what is to come. And so he wants to to see them prepared and for them to see that their suffering is really a part of God's plan. And it's a part of God's plan, not only for, for their good, but ultimately for God to be glorified in that plan. So I think Peter's hope in speaking of rejoicing and being glad is to ultimately see the believers, um, to see them thrive in the suffering that they were beginning to experience. I believe that was Peter's hope. But I want us to be careful here as well. You see, as Christians today, we got to be careful of what we call persecution and suffering in this country. Some of us have faced some simple hardships and we call it suffering. And you know what I'm talking about? It's when you go to your favorite fast food restaurant and the french fries aren't salty enough. We are calling that suffering. It's not. It's like when we go to our favorite coffee shop and they close early for no reason. It's not persecution. Let me dig a little deeper. Sometimes we find ourselves in situations where political groups that we don't affirm or who don't affirm the word keep winning. And we call that persecution. Sometimes we see prayer being pushed from schools and we call that suffering. We see Christian groups being forced out of places and replaced with political groups and political ideologies that do not match our own, and we call that persecution. But the reality is, in those moments, we're not being persecuted. Rather, we're simply being treated as insignificant, which is really more marginalization than it is suffering and persecution. We have not yet seen the persecution that Peter was seeing and that Peter was talking about. So for for believers today, in our society today, let's be careful what we call persecution because by God's grace, we have not seen the type of persecution that Peter was talking about. But here's the reality as well. Just because we haven't seen it doesn't mean it won't happen. Just because we haven't seen it doesn't mean it won't come. In fact, moving back into the text, Peter moves on from there uh, and tells us and gives us the purpose of this planned suffering that he speaks about in verse 12. Look with me in verses 17 and verse 18. Peter says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Notice what Peter is saying to the exiles. He says that God's judgment is moving through the earth. And the reality is this, is even as believers, even as the gathered body of believers, which is the church, we will not escape the judgment of God. So when judgment begins... With the household of God, which is what Peter tells us, this fiery trial that was mentioned already back in verse 12 will be used to test, to prove, and to purify the church. However, going back to verse 17 and 18, Peter also warns us that when it burns the world, this, this fiery trial mentioned in verse 12, when it begins to burn the world, the world will either have two choices. It will either be awakened or it will be destroyed. You see, God, through the fiery trials of verse 12, 
which is also the time of judgment mentioned in verse 17. For the believers is seeking to purify the church for the purpose of seeking holiness in the church. Did you hear that? Our time of judgment, the fiery trials that we experience as believers, there is a purpose for it. God has a plan for it. And that plan is for us to grow in holiness. So the answer to the question of, does God care about truth? Yes, he does. Because he cares about righteousness. He cares about our sanctification. Yes, there is grace. Yes, there is mercy. But there's also this beautiful thing called accountability where we get tested and proved and squeezed. And it's in those moments of of testing and proving and squeezing that we see that God is seeking to make us more holy. So we have to ask this morning, do we see the plan and the joy that is found in suffering? Do we see the reason that we have to rejoice? Because even though we suffer at the hands of sinful people, which can happen, will happen, we can also know that God is using our current suffering to grow us in holiness so that we will look more like him at the last days. Now coming back to our text in verse 18, we see that God causes us to pass through the testing fire of his judgment. Again, for the purpose of being holy, not because he hates us. God does not give and allow suffering because he hates us, but rather because he loves us and he desires our purity. I want you to pay attention to what we're learning from God in this moment. God hates sin so much and loves us so much that he will spare no pain to rid us of that which he hates, which separates us from him. Now we may say, what an angry and vindictive God. Why would he do that? Can I tell you something? If you're married and you have children, What do you do when your children do something wrong? You high-five them and give them a cookie, right? No, you don't. You better not. I promise you that's going to backfire when they turn 16. I promise you. You don't sit there and look at them and go, hey, great job on being a terrible kid and not listening to your parents. We're going to Dairy Queen. I have never seen a child get a participation ribbon for being bad. You see, we discipline our children. Why? Because we love them. Why? Because we desire more from them. Why? Because we want to see them mature. Why? Because we want them to turn into caring and kind adults. Do we not? So if that's our scale, which, oh, by the way, is small compared to God, who's seeking after our holiness, why would we expect God to be any less? You see, I think God puts us through trials. Not to simply... See if we actually believe in him. But rather we go through these trials and suffering because he seeks to see us grow in our holiness. He seeks to see us pursue even harder after him. And I believe that's his desire, which now leads us to our second reason that Peter gives us for why we should rejoice and be glad. He says that we should rejoice and be glad in suffering because when we suffer, we share in the suffering of Jesus Christ. Look with me again at verse 13. 
Peter says, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Now again, here is the the central truth of our message and our command, which is to rejoice in the midst of our suffering. But notice that Peter now tells the church that in our suffering, we not only suffer on our own, which is not true, but rather we, we share in the suffering of Jesus Christ. Do you get what Peter is saying to the church at this point? Suffering is a product of the union that we now share with Jesus Christ, who is our Savior and Lord. And since we are united with Christ, our suffering is no longer our own. Our suffering belongs to Jesus Christ who is our Savior and our Lord. So if you're here today and you feel like you're suffering or or you're dealing with some hardship or you're dealing with some news that you didn't want to receive, can I just give you a piece of advice that Peter's trying to give to the exiles in this moment as well? Give it over to God. Because you do not have to suffer alone. Notice again, Peter tells us that we as believers today are not alone in our suffering. But I want you to notice something. Peter's going to take this one step further. Look again at that verse. He says this. I would actually underline this in in, in my, my personal Bible. He says this, that you may also rejoice and be glad. And here's where I would underline. When his glory is revealed. Do you see what Peter is teaching us in this moment? Peter teaches that we can rejoice in suffering because suffering for the glory of God, suffering for our faith provides assurance, which is found when Jesus Christ comes in glory. Okay, so let me, let me unpack that thought for a minute. As believers in Christ, just like Christ, we will suffer first. Which means that just like Jesus Christ, there will be a day that is coming where we will be reunited with him in glory. Whether it's Christ returns or he calls us home or we die because of our faith, we will one day share in glory with him. So when we suffer for the sake of Jesus Christ now, we can be assured of knowing that glory in the kingdom of God, in the presence of Jesus Christ, is one day coming for us as well. You see, there is a day that is coming where the glory of Jesus Christ will be revealed. Like we talked about last week, as those who are living in this last phase that Peter was talking about, we can live in the hope of knowing that our suffering draws us closer to God. It draws us closer to His glory being revealed. And I mean, have you ever given that thought, I got to be honest with you, when when I'm going through some hardships and suffering, I'm going to be real. My first thought is generally not, hey, praise God, this is suffering. I'm suffering, probably brought on by myself. And I'm thinking about my eternal reward. I've never done that. Okay, so this is a bit convicting for me. But as believers, have you given much thought to what the day of glory will be like? And I'm not just talking about the the streets of gold beyond the crystal sea that we often sing about. I'm talking about what this kingdom is going to be like. See, one of my favorite bands tried to put this in song form. And they describe it this way. They said, there is a far kingdom a ways from here. Beyond the storm. 
and beyond the sea. There will be no need of darkness and none for tears when the far kingdom I see. There is a far, far kingdom there at the end of the sea where they know my name. And until that far, far kingdom calls me home, oh, my soul, I will wait. You see, Christian, here is our hope in sharing in the suffering of Jesus Christ. It's just as Christ suffered at the cross, he was raised in glory. So we too will suffer. But one day, one day, in a far kingdom, we will be reunited with Christ in glory. One day, the journey and the suffering will have been worth it. So suffer for a little while here because again, we share in the suffering of Jesus Christ and it will one day unite us to Christ in eternity when we see his glory. Christian, there is hope in our suffering. And it's the fact that we share in the suffering of Jesus Christ and he shares in our suffering with us. This leads to Peter's third point where he says, rejoice and be glad. Again, the command is to rejoice. Rejoice and be glad, he says, because in suffering, the spirit of God rests upon us. So it's not enough that Jesus Christ shares in our suffering, but now we have the hope of knowing that the Spirit of God now rests upon us. Look with me at verse 14 real quick. Peter says, If you were insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Notice that Peter now tells the church that there is a great consolation to be found in our greatest trials. There is great support that comes from heaven, that comes from the kingdom of God. And so Peter teaches that we may in this moment feel like that we cannot bear the burden of suffering, but he says that we as believers no longer have to carry this burden alone because not only does Christ share in that suffering, but we now have the Spirit of God who is with us. And he teaches that in the midst of the suffering, it is the Spirit of God that is molding us and shaping us to be more like Jesus Christ. In other words, when the Spirit of God is rested upon His people as they suffer, we can rest in knowing that we are being made more and more into the image of Christ, which means we are growing in our holiness now, again, the best way I can compare this is kind of like a marriage. And yes, for those of you who want to know, I did ask my wife permission to share what I'm about to share with you. You see, when you're married, the longer that you are together, the more that you become like your spouse. You've probably noticed this. Some of you might have had that realization one day, middle of the day, you woke up or woke up from a nap while at work because you were just completely blanked out and said, oh, my word, I have become my spouse. This is bad. No, you probably didn't say the last part. 
But the reality is, the longer you're together with a spouse, the more you become one, the more you begin to think alike, the more you begin to act alike, the more you begin to talk alike. And so here's what I learned. I, I sat down and started thinking about my own wife and Allison and how and what I've learned from her. And I can tell you that what I've learned from her in the years that we've been together is how to care for people like family, how to love them and to, and to serve them well and to love them enough to be, to be compassionate and be passionate enough uh, to share truth with them. I've learned what it means to have a passion for Christ, not only in life, but also in worship, man. I've learned that it's just okay to sing loud and proud, and it doesn't matter because we're singing to Jesus Christ. And that's awesome. I love worshiping next to my wife. It's the coolest thing ever. So I thought all these things, and I wrote them down in my notes, and I thought, wow, Johnny, this is a great opportunity to sit down with your wife and ask her, hey, Allison, what have you learned from me in our time of being together and in been marriage? And she said this, do you want me to give you the good or the bad? I don't know how to take that. Then the first thing she said to me is I learned that it is important to eat dessert before bed. <laughs> I know it's not healthy, guys, but come on. Oh, man. There was some good stuff. She said this. She said, no, seriously, I've learned from you how to be gracious when others make mistakes. I've learned from you how to talk out problems and be intentional in conversations. And I was like, okay, we've redeemed ourselves. Now let's have some Oreos and milk because that's how you... And every night. Anyway, by the way, that's not a sign that I need more Oreos in my life. So don't do what you did with the pizza chips and start bringing those in. Don't do that. Please, please don't. Okay. Uh, let clarify that point real quick. Coming back to the text. You see, when we begin to suffer for Christ, just like in our own marriages, how we continue to grow together and how we, the more we're together, the more we become like each other. We see that in suffering for the sake of Jesus Christ, suffering for the name of Jesus Christ, we realize that not only is the Spirit of God upon us, but we begin to look more and more like Jesus Christ in what we say and what we do and how we respond. Now, I want to go ahead and tell you that when you look at our text, you get to verse 15. And Peter actually gives a warning. So in the midst of this command to rejoice, Peter now gives us a warning. He says this, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Now, again, for the sake of time, I think there's really uh, some items that we can learn here that are fairly self-explanatory. And so I think what Peter's on the surface level is saying to us is this, don't do anything criminal, okay? Do not go and rob the racetrack two doors down and say, I'm doing this in the name of Jesus. No, you're not. That's a crime, okay? There are people in this room who would frown upon that, let alone your pastor, okay? So that's not what Peter is saying at all, but rather I think Peter's actually taking these words one step further. He's saying, listen, let none of you suffer as a murderer, meaning this, don't walk around being angry all the time. You got resentment in your life towards someone, towards something, let it go. Stop passing harsh judgment against someone based on a situation you know little to nothing about. He then talks about how you shouldn't be a thief. Well, theft. I think Peter also is saying at this point, he's saying, listen, don't be envious of other people. Don't be a, a greedy person. Don't manipulate funds. Don't waste the wealth that God has given you. Then there's that word evildoer, which I think is self-explanatory. Don't do anything evil. I think that's, that's fairly covered here. But let's skip down to the next word, which is meddler. 
Meddler means this. I think Peter's saying, hey, listen, don't scheme against others for the purpose of gaining influence. Don't stick your nose into, into matters that are not your concern nor directly yours to be spoken into. Don't, don't meddle, if you will, into situations where your opinion is not wanted nor is it involved. Because when you do, that's when more problems arise. Notice that Peter offers this warning so that when we overstep our bounds, which we will, and we will get in trouble for them, Peter is saying to us, listen, in those moments, don't call it persecution because it's not. If somebody holds you accountable for that, it's not harshness, it's just truth. In fact, I would give you this simple illustration. If you find yourself at work and you're witnessing to a coworker over lunch and then all of a sudden your, your 30 minute lunch or your hour lunch is over and you're late getting back to work and all of a sudden the boss reprimands you, that is not persecution. You're not being persecuted because you shared your faith. You're being held accountable because you were late getting back. If you involve yourself in a conflict, and you ask yourself, why are you involved? And why are these people speaking harshly to me now? That also is not persecution either. You see, Peter wanted to make sure that the church understood the difference between suffering for the sake of Jesus Christ and suffering for the sake of our own sin. Even when harsh language is thrown at us, instead of asking, why am I being persecuted in this moment? We should probably start by asking, what have I done to warrant such a word? And then maybe we should do some self-reflection on what has occurred before we land at the conclusion that we are being persecuted. Christian, it's very simple with this point. As we suffer for Christ, we can rest in knowing that the Spirit of God is with us. And because of this truth, we can rejoice because the Spirit of God is molding us and shaping us to be more and more like Christ. Thus, we are growing in our own holiness. So don't fall into the trap of sin and calling accountability harsh when it comes, or better yet, calling accountability persecution because it is not. Rather, see all moments of suffering as an opportunity to be shaped into the image of God. This leads to our fourth point, which Peter says this, Rejoice and be glad, because our suffering glorifies God. Our suffering glorifies God. Now again, not to labor on a point that we've already discussed last week, but here Peter now calls the church to continue to glorify God as we suffer. He says in verse 16, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Notice that Peter calls the church to continue to praise God for the suffering and the slander that has come. And he says to the church, listen, if you're going to do anything through your suffering, if you're going to do anything through your hardships that you're experiencing before your faith, then do this, continue to rejoice. Because in your rejoicing, you are showing that God is far more valuable. You are showing that God is far more precious. You are showing that God is far more desirable. And it is God and God alone who is satisfying over everything in this world. You see, when we glorify God in our suffering, it reveals that God is our greatest source of joy. And nothing else can satisfy us. So let me ask you, when you are squeezed again, 
Is what is coming out of you glorifying to God? Is it, is it pointing people to the glory that is found in the name of Jesus? Or are they seeing the root of our sin fall before them? Are they seeing the, the struggles that we have fall before them? Now, many would ask at this point, well, how does glorifying God play out practically in today's world? Because here's the reality. We, we live in a day and a time, <coughs> excuse me, we live in a day and a time where people no longer want to talk things out anymore. We just want to launch insults at each other, man. It's like, uh, man, can I date myself one more time? Anybody remember that old Atari game, the missile game, where you're shooting missiles across the screens? Anybody remember that? Or better yet, maybe that's not a good example. Remember, uh, what's that, Pong? Does everybody remember Pong? Where the ball goes slowly across and, you know what I'm talking? It eventually gets faster, right? You know what I'm talking? Are there people in this room that has not played that game? Shame on you. You should play it. You should play it. You really, you should definitely play it. Anyway. This is how this is what happens to us in today's world is people launch an insult after at us or they launch an accusation at us and the very next thing we want to do is throw one back at them. And I think what Peter's saying in this moment and speaking of glorifying God practically here's what he says if somebody comes to you because of your faith and because you've been sharing the gospel and they say listen you're just you're just your your beliefs are archaic and you're just a fundamentalist in what you believe you should simply look at them and say yes I do. Yes and amen I am. I believe in the fundamentals of faith in Jesus Christ. If people look at us today, and because of our faith, and, and they're, they're going through a situation, and we give them scripture, and they say to you, hey, don't give me this scripture right now. Man, you're just, man, you're just beating me with your Bible. You're just a Bible thumper right now. I don't need to hear this right now. Say to them, yes. Yeah. I do read the Word of God. I do honor the Word of God. You notice the difference here? We're not launching insult for insult. If somebody looks at you and says, oh, well, look at you. You don't want to go out with us because, you know, you're too busy on Sunday morning in worship. You must be one of those Puritans. What a great insult, by the way. I'd be okay with that one. Say to them, yes, you're right. I strive for purity and integrity in my life. If someone says to you, well, what are you just too good for us? Is it because you're a Christian? Like they mean that as derogatory? I mean, come on. In Peter's day, it was derogatory to be a Christian. And yet it was Peter's day that the Christians were embracing it. They're like, yeah, call me that. You're, you're comparing me to Christ. This is good. And so if people today are, are using Christian as a derogatory term, saying to us, oh, well, what are you, some super Christian or something? Say to them, yeah, I'm a Christian. You're right. I do follow Jesus. Praise God. And in that, I will rejoice. You see, Christian, it's okay to be mocked. It's okay to be ridiculed for our faith. It's okay to be slandered and insulted for our faith. It's okay to be called names because in the name calling, like the exiles being called Christians as a derogatory term, we can praise God that people are seeing in our lives the image of God. Therefore, we are now mirroring the characteristics and qualities of God, and thus it's God who is now being glorified in our actions and words. I mean, Christian, don't miss the opportunity when people look at you and say, hey, there is just something different about you. Don't miss that moment. Because what makes you different is you are growing and being formed more and more into the image of God. And so tell the people about the gospel. Tell them about the good news of Jesus Christ. And so I have to ask you this question, how does our lives mirror God in such a way that others take notice? How do our actions and our words speak and point people to the glory of God?
This leads to Peter's fifth and final point and where we will close today. Peter says, rejoice and be glad because in suffering, we can entrust our souls to God. In suffering, we can entrust our souls to God. Now again, just to recap, here's what we've learned from verses 12 through verse 19. We've learned that suffering was planned for our good and ultimately for God's glory. We've learned that in suffering, it is the Spirit of God that is with us, and it is the Spirit that is molding us and shaping us to look more like Christ. In suffering, we have seen from Peter that Jesus shares in our suffering with us. Thus, we are continually being made into his image, and we can look forward to the glory that is to be revealed. And so in our text now, in verse 19, Peter gives us one final reason to rejoice. He says this, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Notice that Peter reminds the exiles that they now hand their lives over to God because God alone is faithful. David said these very same words back in Psalm 31, verse 5. He says, into your hand I commit my spirit, for you have redeemed me, O Lord and faithful God. Now, if you notice those first words, into your hands I commit my spirit, these were the same words spoken by Jesus Christ at the cross in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23. But here was Peter's point. We as Christians today can entrust our lives to Jesus Christ because he alone is and forever will be faithful. God will not fail us. Our jobs will fail us. Our lives will fail us. People around us will fail us. Our bodies will fail us. But Jesus Christ will never fail us. Jesus will continue to care for our soul. Christian, we need to recognize that one day, one day, this fleeting world will pass. One day Christ will return in glory or one day our bodies will fail us for the final time. And on that day, there will be a reckoning that is coming. And so we have to ask ourselves, as Christians walking through the fiery trials of today, as Christians knowing that the judgment of God is coming, what will that day be like? Will our souls be entrusted to the care of Jesus Christ because we have declared that he alone is our Savior and Lord and we have placed our faith in him? Or will we be judged for our actions and our lack of faith apart from Christ? But man, here's the beauty of a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's this, our souls now rest in his care. As Christians, we have a hope As Christians, we realize that the power of the cross was found in the atoning work of Jesus Christ and then was revealed at the resurrection when his glory was seen by all. And that is the hope that we now hold on to. You see, Jesus is not only with us, he walks with us. And when our days end on this earth, If suffering comes, and that's how it ends for us, 
we can rest in knowing that we belong to Christ. So in the midst of heavy persecution, Peter calls the exiles to remain faithful, to remain true to their faith, to remain true to their call. And he calls them to persevere one final time. He tells the exiles in suffering that there is a plan. He says to them in suffering that they now share in Christ's suffering as well, which means Christ is with them in their suffering. He says that in suffering, you can know that the Spirit of God rests upon you, molding you and shaping you to be more like Him. He says in suffering, we glorify God as we mirror Him through our suffering. And then Peter says in his final word of verse 19, in suffering, when the end of our days come, we can entrust our soul to his care for all of eternity. This is why Peter can say to the exiles and says to us today, in the midst of your persecution, in the midst of your hardship, in the midst of your suffering, rejoice. Rejoice and be glad. Because something greater awaits. We are not alone in our suffering. A far kingdom is coming. And until that day, we wait and we rejoice in hope. Let's pray together.